Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Michael Judd, a permaculture practitioner from Frederick, Maryland, and the author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. I recorded this conversation with Michael when I visited him to discuss his book. You will find a link to that first interview, which includes more information about Michael's background, in the show notes. During this discussion, we talk about a wide variety of subjects regarding getting one's hands dirty with permaculture, both figuratively and literally, and we include his work with international permaculture in Nicaragua as part of Project Bonafide, as well as professional permaculture and just getting out there and doing the work, whether in the landscape or whatever else it is that we might dream about. I enjoy this conversation because of the give and take between the two of us, the dialogue that occurs by being in person with him while recording the interview. I find that those in-person conversations lead to more dynamic, deeper discussions than what occur via Skype or over the phone. You've heard those kinds of conversations with Ben Weiss and Wilson Alvarez or in the Susquehanna Permaculture Roundtable discussion. Help me meet more of these great guests and increase the amount of depth that you hear by supporting the show. Find out how to make an ongoing contribution by visiting www.thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support. Now then, on to Michael Judd. I'll join you again afterwards with a small thought and a class announcement. Thank you again, Michael, for sitting down and talking with me about the work that you're doing. I'd like to learn more about your Project Bonafide and doing international permaculture and international education. And then if we can spend a few minutes there at the end, just talking about what it's like to be teaching workshops and permaculture, both all over the world, and then also now that you're back at your family's homestead. Okay, well, that's a fast subject. I don't know if I could speak to international permaculture in the sense of what's going on around the world and the different styles and approaches. Certainly, Latin America has been where I've lived and, and where Project Bonafide is. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, our project is on Isla Ometepe, which is in southwest Nicaragua, just above the Costa, Costa Rican border. And it's this magical place. It's this magical island that's two volcanoes that rise out of this immense lake and this figure eight. And one is, is conical and actually active. And the other has this large rain-fed lagoon in its crater with cloud forests wrapping around it. And this, this island's huge. We're talking 12 miles point to point. You know, the largest island in a freshwater lake in the world. It's got about 40,000 people living on it. And since it is an island, it's isolated from, you know, commerce and, you know, the stream of traffic of the mainland of Nicaragua and Central America. So the people still rely on the land. They still rely on each other, their community, their animals. This is what drew me to that island with the idea of starting Project Bonafide, which is based in long-term food security, basically focusing on the perennial food forest model to create all the benefits that it, that it has, not only just for immediate needs and food security, but creating market niches. So an example, when we're talking about food security in a rural part of, of, of the world, Nicaragua in this example, uh, you know, what does that look like? Our vision has begun with thinking about 
bringing in different grafted varieties of example mangoes okay so they have a naturalized mango there and it's this tall tree that puts out these little egg-sized mangoes that are really stringy and they produce and they glut all like in may and fall to the ground and it's great and pigs and animals and everyone everyone's eating them and then it's gone there's not another mango usually you know for the next 11 months of the year but there's all kinds of varieties of mangoes out there that have different months of production. So as an example, our project has gone and sought out varieties in other parts of Central America, Hawaii, uh, Florida, places with the similar climatic patterns and, and genetic makeup. And we've worked with grafting that, that sort of naturalized mango so that we're working toward having extended seasons of harvest so that there's more food, there's more perennial food at hand when annual crops other things fail. Beyond that, you're also getting a niche market. You're getting mangoes off-season. So you've gone and planted a couple mango trees around your rice paddy, your rice field. You're actually getting a few more dollars. And hopefully that economic encouragement stimulates planting more perennials. So to kind of step back a little bit further in all of this, when I first started Project Bonafide and had you know these strong visions and head full of permaculture, and, you know, the pitches I'd given to fundraisers, you know, you come from American culture and you do a fundraising event and they're thinking, OK, what's your three and five year plan, you know, for all this money you're getting? And you're like, shit, I don't know. I'm just I'm just I got I'm just going into it. I mean, how do I do? But you got to come up with something. Right. And I think, unfortunately, that that begins to kind of frame your approach. And I think this is also a catch to be careful of with 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 nonprofit work is when you're backed. A lot of times there's pressure with that money. So we've always been careful. We've always been broke. And I think, you know, purposefully in some ways. Uh, anyway, it's worked out that we've not had a lot of money because it's made us go very slow. And I think that's been one of the most appropriate things, uh, especially in a place like uh, rural Nicaragua. In working through providing these kinds of markets for these products, are you looking at any secondary or tertiary derivatives? of what you're helping to begin producing there to provide additional, what is it, value add to the work that they're doing? Absolutely. Part of my original understanding for the project was to create a very realistic economic model. I have learned that you can get on your soapbox and you can talk about the importance of all these aspects. And, you know, when you get on that soapbox in front of, you know, families that are living on the edge, you know, they have no margin of error in, in their life. They're living on the edge of hunger. So you can get up and talk about all these benefits you're going to get, you know, from, you know, better water, you know, less herbicides, you know, all these things. But if it doesn't immediately affect their economic benefit, they, they can't risk trying something new, which, you know, I think we have that luxury, you know, to go and learn and try something new and fail and not be hungry, you know. Grocery store is still open down the street. So the focus on these, like I said, first food security for having food in hand when your annual crops fail, which is what the pattern has been and it continues to be around the world as cash cropping has been implemented on a, on a wide scale. Now, cash cropping, it usually depends on annuals, rice, beans, corn, things that are sold as commodities. I think as soon as we started selling food as a commodity on the open market, it began affecting our use of landscape. So a country like Nicaragua has debt, right? Has debt. It owes debt to IMF, World Bank, you know, the U.S. government, right? 
So these institutions look at Nicaragua and they're like, how are you going to pay us back? What is your skill base? Okay, look, you're farmers, you're working with the land, you have land, you have rich land, and you have a populace that's working that land. Okay, so that's how we're going to get our money back. And we're going to do that with a commodity. We're going to do that with rice, beans, and corn. So they come in with a wide sweeping program and encouragement, you know, materials to start up. Hey, you know, start up with, you know, here's the herbicides. Let's clear, let's slash, burn, clear your land. Let's plant this rice, beans, and corn. This was done, you know, back in the 50s to start with. So just in a couple generations, the landscape has changed, the culture has changed, the diet has changed. And it's not worked. I don't think it's worked very much for the debt relief, obviously. And it's definitely not worked for the small farmer on their land. They've never generated much income from growing their rice and beans, but now that's what they know. And the challenge comes when those crops fail due to inclement weather during you know, their time of going to seed, when they're going to head, we call it. So for example, your rice crop's going to seed and you get this long drought two weeks during your usual growing season. So that crop fails. Or reverse, you're harvesting your beans and it's really wet. You, know, you lose that bean crop. And if that's all that you have and all that you're relying on, all of a sudden you're literally without food because you've slashed and burned your diversity, right? So this was kind of what drew me to start Project Bonafide and drew me down in Nicaragua with the intention of bringing back more perennial food systems and not just bring back what used to be there because the climatic patterns have changed. You know, that whole Pacific side of Central America has become increasingly drier and drier and drier so that now there's a very definitive dry season of like six months without rain. And then there's kind of monsoons which are supposed to be for another six months, which now are starting to change as well. So we get, you know, global weirding and whatever. Uh, just the deforestation is making it more extreme. So those crops are failing. So they're going hungry. So the intention behind Project Bonafide is when I talk about food security, so if we plant those, those mangoes or those avocados that have different varieties, have different, different months, so the crops, the annual crops fail, there's food at hand. Those perennials will take that inclement weather much better. They'll go through a couple of weeks of drought or a month of drought, or too much rain, and still be productive. So there's food at hand when the annuals fail. But beyond that, there's that niche market I spoke of. They can actually now sell. They're going to the market with mangoes in July, and no one else has got them. Bam, they're making some money. So this is when it really begins to sink in. Hey, I'm making money on this, you know. I'm going to put a few more trees around my rice field. I'm going to keep growing my rice, because that's my diet and my culture. But look, I'm going to start planting a few more trees. And it slowly does begin to um, transition the landscape. It gets to those dynamics I wanted to start with and jump in with, but, you know, obviously wasn't going to work from the get-go like that. But to also answer your question about value-added, yes, forming cooperatives, which is something Nicaraguans, you know, are very used to from the Sandinista revolution, and value-adding those goods into, so take your mangoes, take your cacao, take your sugar cane, you know, take your vanilla, you know, all of these good food forest combinations and, you know, dry your mangoes and then make this cacao chocolate sauce and put your ginger in there, put your sugar cane in there, put your vanilla in there and then dip your mango in there, right? And sun dry that again. I mean, hot damn, that's going to sell, you know, I'd buy it. Anyway, that's stimulating your food forest. You know, it's kind of like using the economics to design the landscape. And, and realistically, our economics, our diet, you know, dictates our landscape. And what's on your plate is what's outside your, you know, your door, or your window, what you're driving by. And the more that we can kind of guide 
our diet and our choices, I think we'll see that change in the landscape. Now for us, I mean, what is that like acorn mush and ground nut? And I mean, we can be pretty creative with it. Anyway, I regress. So then with Project Bonafide, that became a permaculture-based project beginning around food security. What has it become in the time since then, or is it still developing those core practices? It has become so much more than I could have envisioned or imagined. And that happened through a lot of different stages and because of a lot of dynamic, great individuals. I mentioned Doug Bullock being a great friend and teacher and mentor at the genesis of creating Project Bonafide. He added a lot of really good perception and experience that I, I was be able to, to start with. And then notably, Chris Shanks came on about a year and a half after I'd begun the project, had kept pace with me as I'd began it, and then has really come in and, and invested his life. And he's a real plant guy. He's a plant ninja. And brought in a new diversity and angle, you know, and really brought in education, brought in permaculture design courses. He and Doug started teaching courses down there and created this, this wonderful course based around the actual design of our 26-acre food forest permaculture project. We call it Finca Bonafide, Bonafide Farm. So through these other individuals, the project has taken on a lot of diversity. A lot of people come from all over the Americas, from all over Nicaragua and other places. They come, they intern, they come and teach workshops. Basically, what was created was just a platform, a space for learning. And that's really filled in from all these different people coming in. Now, one of the technical questions I had of you for this is, are you working through translators? when you're there? Or is it something that you encourage yourself and other people there to be speakers of the native tongue? Or how do you handle that? It's muy necesario hablar en español. Si estás en Nicaragua. <laughs> Get some head shakes on that. It was essential to know Spanish, to live down there. And I say that not for the actual word exchange, but to be able to really listen and understand where the culture is. The only successes that I've had with the project have come from the community itself, from living in the community, from listening to what the community wanted, uh, where they were ready to begin. That's the only time I had success. When I had another idea or an idea that might have been a little bit further along or a bigger idea, it did not go anywhere. I worked myself down to the bone and nothing happened. Right. And then I would just kind of be exhausted and I'd go to the local, you know, cafe and I'd sit there and watch the community go by and talk to my friends and, and pick up these little tidbits, you know, of what they were interested in doing. Or if I, we had a conversation and they'd be like, oh, you know what? I'd help you with that. You know, I know some other people that could do this and that. And you could see their excitement forming around an idea. And when I supported those or interacted with those, we had success. The Children's Nutritional Program that I mentioned on another podcast is a great example of that, where the community was ready to start with basics, basic nutrition that they were interested in. Not where I was thinking, you know, with all this, you know, food security and perennials and food forests, uh-uh. You know, with milk, with eggs, with things they had locally available, multivitamins, those were great. So I started with that, and then through that, we have diversified. It was part of the conversation we had last time. We talked about, you know, not having to call what you're doing permaculture, just to get out there and do it and show examples. And I know from some of my experiences, 
without community buy-in, you can't really get anywhere. Or a project falls apart because there's no one there to support it. I know you had mentioned you had heard the interview I did with Dave Jackie. And part of our conversation there was about, you know, if we're really going to build systems that work, we have to have people involved. And it's like, well, how do we do that? And listening to the story you just shared makes me think about that. There's a lot of, I almost think of it as colonialism, that whole, I know what I'm doing, so now you're going to know what I'm doing, and that's going to make a difference in your life. There was a study I just read a month or two ago about they're showing that direct monetary subsidies, just giving someone money does more good in their life than trying to say, here's a program that will give you food, here's a program that will give you this, because the people are able to make their decisions around that. Now, yes, they, they addressed that there was a lot of waste from that and money just went in places we, we wouldn't have thought that it should have gone from our own perspective, but that's this perception that we're all the same and not meeting that person where they're at and what their needs are. Because I can say from my own life, when you're trying to make the decision about where am I going to buy my food for the next week to feed my family versus this other decision, it's hard to make good decisions when you're just trying to meet these basic needs. And I imagine that in your community experience, it becomes one of those of, you have this grand idea and it's like, but, but Michael, we don't need that. This is what we need. Right. Absolutely. You hit on a lot of great points there. And I think the underlying one is that you need the social dynamics for any design to work. And I've seen that in other places as well. Designs I've worked on, these great, you know, investments and installations, you know, dynamic, really self-functioning, but there's no social element behind it to maintain it. And ideally, yes, permaculture design maintains itself, but that takes a little, it takes a little get going. You know, you definitely got to put some elbow grease and some work in for two or three years to get systems really strong and resilient to where, yes, you are just swinging in the hammock and then going out and picking the, you know, the food or whatever, but you need that social dynamic in it to begin with and to keep it alive. And that was definitely the essence, I think, of what I learned when I was down there to scale back my ideas and visions and begin where the community was ready, is ready to do that. And very much where I still am, you know, as I come back and live in, in North American culture, backscaling and being, okay, where are people ready to begin? Not where I'm excited you know, to be doing things and creating and, you know, doing these installations or, you know, building a name for my designs and stuff. No. Where are people ready and how do I just kind of start with that? And that was one of the pieces that I wanted to touch on in this conversation and I think moves us well in that direction is that now that you're back, you're doing a lot more education and workshops directly in the kinds of things that we might normally think of as permaculture, doing, you know, workshops on mushroom logs and you're working on building a timber-framed roundwood house, if I have that term correct. It's a bit of a mouthful for me. And showing people natural building. And how is that education meeting those needs of the social dynamic and engaging others? It has been the seed of my success in learning as I've returned to this culture by hosting these hands-on workshops by having a diversity of people from this suburban area come. And as much as I'm sharing, I'm listening and learning and watching about their interest and excitement, uh, hearing about their little projects. And the dynamic that is created uh, is, is a real mutual sharing, you know, as we come together. And these people are all isolated from each other, generally speaking. I think that's a norm for our culture. And so, you know, coming together for, you know, a permaculture edible landscape workshop is sometimes the first time these individuals even get together. 
And there is a general excitement uh, that goes on in sharing. So the workshops have been the foundation of my work, of my learning, and everything that I'm doing here back in the States. It's been wonderful. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't actually do a lot of teaching before. I'm more of a doer. The PDCs, the Permaculture Design Courses, and everything going on at Project Bonafide have been, have been led and created by Chris Shanks. You know, Doug Bullock and, you know, Dave and all these other wonderful teachers. You know, I've always been on the sideline. I've jumped in when it was hands-ons, you know, when we had to build the compost toilet or something like that. I was like, okay, I led that. So when I came back to the States, I was feel like, well, I don't know how to teach. I don't know how to share anything. You know, I'm not comfortable in that realm. And what do I really know that other people couldn't really figure out? And then I was surprised, you know, like, hey, here's a, let's build something simple. Let's build an herb spiral, right? There's not a whole lot, you know, to, to teach about this. But I was really surprised and encouraged when people were excited about just showing, and you know, even if something as simple as that. And I realized that, hey, I don't really had to know, I didn't really have to be this expert, quote unquote, to share something. People were eager to learn and just to get together and to share together, you know, creating something. So yeah, I would say the workshops, I've been very rewarding. And before we sat down to record this session, you were saying that the workshops that you've offered so far have been well attended. You've actually had to cap your numbers in order to provide the right workshop experience. And I find that very encouraging. I don't know of a lot of mid-Atlantic permaculture projects or courses that are, that are currently happening. It seems that we've got the Northeast is now well covered. The West Coast has always been good. And then it's like it's kind of ranging along the South of the United States. And we're finally beginning to open up here. Absolutely. And I guess that's why I'm encouraging the idea of doing a workshop. So if you're a recent PDC or you've gone out and successfully done something in your yard, you know, do a workshop on it. Not necessarily a talk. I mean, a talk, okay. You know, that, that's, anyway, I won't discourage it, but actually get out there and do it. You know, do it again on your landscape. Get a friend's place, you know, where, where they want to see this installation. I mean, you can start to create an income for yourself as well. You know, our workshops, we, we charge people maybe 40, 50 bucks ahead for people to come. You know, something that's within a range of, yeah, I would spend that to go learn this for a day. And that helps finance the materials that you might be putting into the project. And then, you know, whatever else you're wanting to do on your land, it's a good way, it's a good permaculture design to generate income from, you know, your own space and home. And it's one of the conversations I've had with quite a few people is that we do live in this culture. We can't just discard money and financial capital at this point. Ideally, would I love to be there? And Yes. But is that likely to happen in my lifetime? No. Your wife and your young son are sitting here, and I don't imagine that it will happen in his either. But we can get closer to those points and the things that we want to do. But in the meantime, money's not evil. It's a tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I like to share, and the book I just written also focuses on, is, is ways to be successful. We have an edible landscaping business called Ecologia, and we're making money. Now, of course, we're in an area, we're in a suburban area, we're in a populace that has an interest in enough people and enough income to do it. But we are actually creating a pretty good profit from our work and our designs, helping people, you know, carve up their yards into these functional landscapes. So it's really cool. I mean, it's great to make a living at these things. So you really can. But it started out pretty much with workshops. You know, it started out, you know, just building that community. So the rhythm has been do a workshop. You know, people are interested in, you know, we're doing, do you do consultations? Yes, we'll come do a paid consultation, right? Do the consultation. Then a lot of times it's like, you know, 
would you do the installation as well or work with us on installation? And so it's like every step of the way, you're creating an income for what you believe in. I think a lot of people are reticent about um, making money from this. And I think it's very realistic that you should make money from this. You know, you're helping other people do it. There's lots of people that would gladly spend the money to have someone to help them create these things in their life. So, you know, I, I wouldn't hold back on finding ways to make a living at this because you'll put more time into it. You'll put more focus in it. And, and really, that's what we need. We need more people out there doing it. One of the things that we spoke to, I don't know if we got that in the last interview or not. We've spoken about quite a lot between these two sessions and the time in between when we weren't actually recording, but that in order to make permaculture mainstream, people need to be able to make money and make a career out of it. Because we were talking, so you know, how many, how many people have abandoned their degrees, these things that they've spent years and years and money, lots of money in many cases, to earn, but then feel dissatisfied from, but feel trapped by it. But in the same token, if we're going to take permaculture mainstream, there have to be more ways to make a living from this than just, well, I'm going to teach and I'm going to run a design business. You can do hands-on work. You can be doing garden installations. They sound like they're the same kinds of things, but they're not. They're their own particular ways to approach this. And I am not a, the, the hands-on, let's grab some mattocks and dig up, dig up a yard kind of person. So that's not my place to fill, but that's certainly a role that you found as a, a way that you like to work. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different avenues to make a living, uh, make money, you know, from good design. Uh, but taking it back to, you know, Nicaragua, it's the same concept. We're talking about the realism that it has to make money. You know, the economics almost, at least down there, you know, my realization is the economics drive the ecology. You know, they drive the, the change in the landscape. And I think very realistically here, too, that, you know, it needs to make money for people to get away from their desk, right? They're, 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 they're not comfortable leaving their job, right? Because they're paying their rent, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of leaves them in that space. So they need to really realistically think about how can I make money from, you know, doing permaculture, doing design and whatnot. And that can be many different ways. And maybe interacting with the public's not your thing. I encourage people to really think about growing mushrooms. There is a really lucrative market. I mean, as far as a legal crop goes, mushrooms are where it's at. You don't have to have the land. There's been some really creative um, entrepreneurs out there who, in small suburban lots, quarter-acre lots, are growing 4,000 logs and making $80,000 a year. They're getting their wood from somewhere locally, and they're setting up shade nets with simple irrigation systems in their back suburban yard. Granted, there's certainly a amount of physical work involved in it, but you're not sitting at that desk anymore. You know, you're out there, you're working with growing systems, you're interacting with a larger community, you're working with restaurants, farmers markets. I mean, you're, you're doing what you've been dreaming about when you're sitting there at the desk. And you just need to explore how to do that. And of course, you can start small and begin to learn it, but really, you know, design your life. Use what you've learned about permaculture and design your life to where you want it to go and, and really be realistic about the economics. And there was a phrase that you used before about grafting what you know onto permaculture. And I really like that turn of phrase, that idea that there's this, this core root system that permaculture provides, but that to find your own way forward, that you can take what you already know and already do and put that on that rootstock and allow it to grow. I mean, we spoke about it off the air that, you know, I come from a background of technology and that's what, how I'm using permaculture now. We're sitting here with microphones and a computer and all this stuff. 
that I knew in order to make permaculture work for me and finding my own way forward. But I'm wondering if you could speak more to that idea of grafting your own life into permaculture, onto permaculture, to make it this intentional. Absolutely. And I think this is where permaculture can be really interesting when you sort of take it out of the physical realm and you take it out of the maps and the drawing and you start to see how it to adapt it to your life and society and things around you. I very much constantly use design in my life to get it to where I want it to go. But what we were talking about and grafting on your skills, a lot of people are coming out of college and they feel like, God, I've just wasted my, you know, four or five, I don't know, maybe more years for some people and a ton of money. And it's like, well, and I'm not even going to use that. You know, it doesn't even, now I'm interested in permaculture and like that has nothing to do with it. No, so many skills that you picked up, even maybe not direct ones, but ones you picked up from being in that environment, knowing that social dynamic, you know, knowing the networking, how do you take that skill base and add it to permaculture, add it to the movement, add it to the community, you know, graft it into creating that income with permaculture? So use those skills. And I think that's what we need. And that's how the movement's growing. And that's how it's diversifying and new things are coming out. And the other side of that as well is that you can also take permaculture and turn it into an academic career if you want to is take these ideas and walk down that road and find a way to engage the current society we have and do something with that. I mean, I look at it, the reason why I'm on the path that I am on now is because I saw a way to utilize permaculture and that education to do something with it. Education is not an end goal, it is a tool to be used to reach these other bigger, broader goals. And there was advice that Wayne Wiseman gave me, I think it was Wayne, on one of the shows, and I almost think that this would be my advice for anyone who's in that high school, beginning college kind of age, would be, if you're interested in this stuff, find a way to go to a PDC, do it, then go learn some trades so you have the body knowledge and the handle and skills to do the timber framing. Learn the work of an electrician so you can safely wire panels and all these other things, and then when you're done, You'll still only be in your early 20s. I mean, I was in my 30s when I found permaculture and really decided to go down this road. And then you have the skills and the tools to really do something and always have work, always have a, an income. And then if you decide, hey, I do want a degree, you can do that then. Yeah. Yeah. There's two parts I took out of what you just said. And the last one there is a lot of what Doug Bullock talks about at the end of his course, you know, the end of a PDC. Where do we go from here? Doug's like, go out there, spend a year, spend a year being an electrician, you know, you know, spend a year doing blacksmithing, you know, spend a year being a carpenter. You know, those skills will combine in time with your life and the, your design and permaculture. They'll all start to come together. But of course, that's not for everyone. I think we tend to look down on the trades uh, compared to, you know, college education, so to say. Uh, and the second part, is that we also tend to think that we need to be an expert to go on and teach or we need, you know, to go down that road. If that is your thing, you know, you're going to more intellectualize. You know, like you say, you're not going to get there. You're not going to be digging with the mattock and swinging the machete. Everyone has a different, you know, ability, approach, interest. And this idea of being an expert is ridiculous, especially when it comes to living systems. There are no experts when it comes to living systems. But, you know, people still like to, you know, label me in that. And I know when I first started teaching workshops and was worried, I was like, you know, I'm not really that savvy on this stuff. You know, I'm just doing it. I was kind of an expert by default. 
people got so much out of it. You know, they still enjoyed it and learned so much. And I was like, you know, I, I didn't feel like I knew that much. So what I'm saying this is I encourage people out there listening is to give it a shot. Go out there. For me, it's easier to do it hands-on because then it's less formal. It's more comfortable in a sense where you're not standing there in front of a room of people or staring at you waiting for you to, you know, give them some great information or direction in life. And you have this dynamic that Dave Jackie talked about, you know, this teacher audience thing, you know, it's better to share. And I think getting out there and doing a hands-on project is a great way. And you might be more comfortable talking about, you know, these concepts as you're doing it or as you're out in the landscape. And um, so I encourage people, you know, if they've had a little bit of experience to go out there and share it. And I think they'll be really well received. Because of the way that our culture is, is this idea of a credentialed society. And it's the reason why I went down this road of education was because I didn't feel like I knew enough to, to do what I wanted to do. And then as soon as I started graduate school, I went, no, I know everything I need to do. What I want to do, I just didn't trust myself enough to do it. But now it's just a matter of I've continued on this path because I really love the hell out of it. And I see a value to our community by continuing on this path. And it's that I get something out of it, whether or not I ever use it. And I think that's a distinction between having a calling and seeking out an education in whatever way that may be versus I need a job, I need a career because I need to pay bills. Well, as I said in my own personal story with you and everyone earlier, I was a sociology anthropology dual major going into college. I only got into computers because I was one of those geeky kids who played with them. And everybody said, do that, you'll make money. And I did, and I still didn't make that much money. And I was like, I'm, I hate myself for this. What do I do next? And that it's, you know, find your own path and work your way forward. If I'm allowed to mention this on here, you know, Paul Wheaton's a great example of somebody who is very passionate about permaculture, about getting the message out. I mean, he's just excited. And that comes through. And he just gave, 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 you know, with his podcast, with his creating these online forums. I mean, the guy put in a million volunteer hours because he believed it and passionate. And now he's really able to, you know, benefit from that economically, you know, which I think is awesome. I think it's a great example of someone following their passion, whatever it is, following and investing in that passion and giving, giving your time, volunteering into it will eventually, you know, manifest itself in, in creating opportunities, you know, creating income. All of a sudden, that's your life because you've really put a lot of time and volunteering into it. I mean, that's, I learned my skills, you know, from running a nonprofit, you know, being a volunteer for 12, 13 years. I learned a ton of skill. It was great. Same with Chris Shanks. You know, we both were, were greenhorns down there. You know, you should have seen how we mangled mangoes learning to graft them. You know, but, but we learned so much. And now, based on all of that passion, interest, and volunteering and giving into something, we have real skill bases that we're making a living from. Well, as you say from your own story, it took you 20 years to get here. I tell my own, and depending on how you want to count the years that I did, it was 16, 18. But again, you're new to permaculture by the sounds of it. And you said you did your PDC in 2010. Is that right? And look how you've just gone with it. Someone who's new to permaculture yet realizes that you have something to share that other people don't even know about. So, you know, you've stepped forward and you've been well-received. And I think that's what I'm pointing out. And when I started doing workshops, I didn't really feel like I knew a whole lot to a degree. And yet I was well-received. I think there's an eagerness out there for even little bits of information. Sometimes little bits are best, you know. 
So if you've got a little bit of experience or you know, something you've been tooling around with, really encourage you to think about sharing that. It doesn't, you don't have to tell people to pay. You can do that later if that works for you. But just start practicing and teaching. I think you'll be really surprised how excited people get. You know, And then you'll want to keep sharing new things with them, and it just naturally unfolds. And following up on that from my own story, it's one of the things that until I really found my own path and what, what I wanted to do, I didn't do very good. I failed the first time I tried to launch a permaculture design business. I've been a, a serial failed entrepreneur for years and years. I was a, a, an online bookseller for a while, which I enjoyed like crazy, and did a lot of different things. I mean, to be honest with the work that I'm doing now, it's only been at the very tail end of 2013 that I actually started to earn something that could even begin to be considered a living from all this work that I was doing. I mean, a hundred plus episodes of the show and all this other work that was going in, in order to build and grow to where I am now, took a lot of work. And I know that that can be really discouraging for people to look at, well, how much does it cost to publish a book? What about the insurance to start a landscaping business? You know, what we're sitting here with like $2,500 worth of electronic equipment just to record this interview, that can be really off-putting to people or not to have a model moving forward. And it's one of the things for me is that I will gladly tell anybody everything that I use, how I run the show, everything that I do, because ultimately I don't think that even with all that equipment, I would be competing with someone else because they would be discovering their own business, their own voice, and we would never sound the same. We would never do the same things. And people need those kinds of models to make permaculture work. Yeah, I, I think designing to become obsolete is a good goal. But I think also how you think about it's important. If you think, oh my God, you know, I got to put all this work in to get to a certain level. I think it's more just starting from your passion and, and just your excitement for something and just doing it, doing it, doing it, you know, and, and then over time, before you know it, that's built up. You know, that's built up, a, you know, a lot of ability that you can then really start to make a living from. And thank you for saying that, because I lost my narrative thread there when I was explaining the work that went into this. When I started that, what I originally wanted to touch on was that idea that when you put the work in and you do these things, if you're passionate about it, you care enough, you care about it, and you're doing what you want to do, you get back from it what you put into it. And I was a little too focused on the financial there before because of, of that idea of making a living. But what I meant to touch on, so thank you for the space where I can correct myself. One of the things that I ran into in doing this was that there were a lot of other things that came out of the work that I was doing. I wasn't making money, but it was, I helped a friend advertise a class. And as a thank you, I got a case of my favorite hot sauce that's only available in Oregon. But from there, as I do this, even, you know, when I'm not out here hanging out with you and your family and friends and such for these live interviews, I sit in a cold, dark office, and it's that feeling of loneliness, like you had mentioned before, that, you know, we're kind of out in the weeds, not knowing where we're going. But the more that I do this, I'm able to apply permaculture and my passion and direction with education to help other people build systems that work for them. Just as an example of that is I have some friends who run a nonprofit that is using gaming as therapy for victims of sexual abuse, children specifically. And we're working now to develop a therapeutic role-playing game system for them to use to teach therapists how to use their methods. And I'm, be, I'm working with them as the educator to build that. And I think about how, like if someone's doing mushroom logs, how they could be consulting with a restaurant or, you know, just teaching their neighbors or 
The only thing that I can really grow in my area are these types of mushrooms, but I'd love to try these. Do you know someone who can grow them? And we can network and build and help one another. Yeah, I'll throw out there that mushrooms seem to be what people are really excited about. You know, I teach a host of workshops, and it's the mushroom workshop that just gets filled in a heartbeat, gets a waiting list. I've got to do two or three classes. It really draws in a, a broad spectrum. So I'm saying that in the sense that, you know, if you're wondering where to begin, what should I do with? I mean, working with fungi is awesome, period. And not just to eat it. It's got a myriad of, of, of ecological benefits in the landscape. But you can just simply start with, hey, I'm going to start growing some shiitake on, you know, maple or oak logs. You know, you're like, hey, I don't want a chainsaw. You don't have to. Call up your local firewood guy and say, hey, you know, look, this is what I need. I need, I need wood that's dormant from healthy trees. I need them to be six inches in diameter by 40 inches long. I'll give you five bucks a piece for them. They're going to be like, hell yeah, I'll get you as many as you want, right? So then all you're doing is, you know, you're doing some drilling and you're doing some inoculating and they're really not that complicated. They are surprisingly robust and very productive and they're perennial. It means you're really, you're investing and you're going to get harvests off these for multiple years. But it's a good segue in, I mean, you can do it anywhere. You can, if, even if you live on a patio and it's in full sun, get a couple straw bales, put some shade cloth over it, stick your log in there, you know? Sprinkle some water on a couple times a week. Anyway, it's a great segue into interacting, making a little money, getting people interested. So, and you mentioned, you know, the things it takes. I can throw in there real quick. It does not take much to start a landscape business. <laughs> I can attest to that, surprisingly. Insurance for regular landscapings for me is like, like 550 bucks a year. So it's not crippling. I know someone who started a business with their bicycle and, you know, and some tools on it. I mean, if you can get a truck, I definitely recommend it. But, you know, jumping into these things and starting these things is not necessarily that complicated. And you'd be surprised there's no competition, generally speaking, you know, for good design, edible design, you know, permaculture design. I wouldn't necessarily go out there flashing that permaculture banner, you know, because a lot of people who you want to be clients are going to be like, what is that? Is that a cult? What is that? Edible landscaping, you know, and that's, that's, that's kind of the banner, you know, my, my book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. It, you know, I'm soft, I'm soft serving the permaculture in there, you know, so the edible landscaping, you all right, Scott? <laughs> so you call it what you want, you know, and I think this is the point that some of, you know, the previous podcasters have talked about, you know, don't, you know, it doesn't have to be permaculture, you know, it, it just call it what you want. And I think calling it what people are ready for is probably what you should call it, yeah. you know? You say that, and I think about it really because I started the show. It's funny sometimes how when you've made it to one of the places where you've been going for a long time, you forget about what it took to get there. And I remember my earliest interviews I were on an old computer that I just had, running a free operating system, free software, a, I think a $30 USB headset, and a subscription to Skype. Like my total outlet was maybe 50 bucks and I did interviews and all my recording and editing and everything with that for a year and a half, two years. So yeah, there really are these ways forward. And one of the things that you touch on about that idea of getting out there and doing it is that it also gets you past that fear of failure. And before you know it, you're already succeeding in some way. So how can you have a fear of success when you're already there? And you've mentioned about, about success and confidence and these little things. And it was said to me by, I think it was Rico Zook said at my teacher training, besides the fact that human beings are 
incredibly good at piling on, so stop, was that confidence is a series of small successes. Start small, do something that you're interested in, do something that you love, and before you know it, you have the confidence to go out there and present yourself. We're not even presenting yourself. You've shown that you are an expert to others. One of my other friends jokes, what's the difference between a guru and an expert? An expert has an audience, you know? And as you do this, it's, I'm still amazed that people turn to me as an expert. And I just throw my hands in the air and go, I know nothing, nothing. But it is, you do what you do, you love it, and people record it, they will come. You know, drill the holes, put your mushroom spore in, they will Surprisingly. I mean, I, I didn't really know anything about mushroom growing. I remember seeing up at Doug, the Bullock's place, you know, their logs and, and talking to them about them. And that was kind of the extent of my cultivated mushroom interaction experience. And then I moved back here, what, three years ago? And, you know, I think I pulled up one of Paul Stamets' books and, you know, maybe looked online. I was like, you know what? This seems really simple. I called up Field and Forest, who's you know a great distributor of of things for for. I mean, they have like a whole package. I mean, Field and Forest. Period. If you if you get their catalog, it tells you how to do it from step one, and here are the materials to do it. I mean, it's a it's a it's a complete get started package with them. Anyway, I just started doing it, and an instant success in doing it. I mean, we have a great climate for it. It's not that complicated, and then instantly I was sharing it and teaching people to do it, and it was like just that quick. And then, you know, people are learning it and they're doing it, they're taking it home, they're really excited. You know, by default, I became an expert just because I was sharing it. I'm like, hey, let's do this together. I'll just, let's walk through it and do it together. Same idea. Same with starting my edible landscape business. Uh, I, I talked to a restaurant and a couple other homeowners and I was like, you know, how about an herb spiral? It looks really cool. You know, it's got its architecture and you can come out and pick your herbs and stuff from it. I'd never built one. I mean, I'd, I'd seen them. I knew about the idea. And I'm not even, I'm not even good with stones, but I just went out there and started playing with it. And it's amazing. You know, it, it's not that hard and it looks good. And, and like you say, all of a sudden you're the expert on it. Everyone's like, oh, wow, cool. And then before you know it, you've got the confidence and more people want one and diversify from that. And then you write a book. And I have to thank you for sharing that because it is that I don't get to engage with all the time is the community as a whole, being that guy with a mic just talking with people that it really can be that easy. Just go, start, do. Go, start, do. I don't know if we're taught a fear of failure or a fear of success that is more dominant for why we don't start projects. But just because you fail doesn't mean that you failed. The project failed. Something didn't start. Something didn't launch. But it's a perfect opportunity. Try again. Do something different. You know, learn from that and pass it on. I can tell all kinds of horrible stories about my own personal permaculture design on my homestead as I was learning these things and put plants in places where they shouldn't have been because I didn't think about how the now mature tree was going to continue to grow. Because it had looked the same for years and years and years. And then I plant some blueberries and then it's like the next year, it's like all of a sudden the tree seems like it's 10 feet bigger. And yeah, you need to learn and just go and enjoy. And, and start small if you'd like. And, and maybe not even, learning about plants takes time. You know, learning about their characteristics, uh, learning where they do well, takes time and observation. And I'm on that learning curve. I've spent, you know, majority of my life in the tropics, spending a lot of time learning those species. Now I'm back here learning these species. And a lot of my work, especially starting out, has been on the design. You know, it's setting up the herb spiral. It's, it's digging those swales. You know, it's starting the food forest patches. It's building the cob ovens. You know, I'm not much of a chef either, but hey, I'll build an oven. And I'll let someone else do it. And the idea is that I'm just 
basically creating the infrastructure. I'm doing the, the jumpstart, the design, so that whatever they want to plan, ideally that's what happens is they get involved. I'm not going to do this full service anything, you know? People are like, oh, can you grow it and harvest it? I'm like, hell no. I'll get it started so that you can do that. So I'm not necessarily needing to be a plant expert, you know, to start with. I'm just sort of installing. A lot of, a lot of my clients know more about plants than I do, you know? And that's fine. You know, that's great. That's actually, I learn a lot from that. And I prefer that because then they really, they really use and interact with the designs that I help install. So putting that out there too, that you don't need to know a lot about plants to begin with. You're creating the space for other people to grow in, for them to have the experience and for them to have the success. And they will have success because you've helped create the right stage for it. I'm enjoying the dynamic of this conversation because of how the two of us approach what we're doing and the work of permaculture so differently. Because as much as I don't like to lecture about permaculture when I'm talking with people and whatnot, it's more of a let's let's have a discussion and then we can mentor through these ideas based on these different perspectives is that I approach permaculture from the perspective of I want to understand how other people understand permaculture so that I can make it easier for them to understand permaculture and then in turn be able to teach better and hopefully get to a point where it's about how do we teach the teachers and become better as instructors. These are research pieces that I'm leading towards and all these, all these bits that happen behind the scenes. So it's interesting for me to have this dynamic conversation about the different ways you can approach the things that you care about, the different ways you can love what you love and do what you do and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm definitely speaking from my own perception. I'm a very nuts and bolts kind of guy. You know, I'm always wanting to get right down to the nitty gritty how you do it. Give me the idea and get out of my way. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go try it. And I know that's not for everyone. And you know, we need this, we need the village. We need this, this permaculture village to really get it all across. But for the people like me, the people who, who are just, you know, a little frustrated and just want to get out there and just want to accomplish something and, and just begin to learning from doing, you know, I certainly encourage you to do that. And please do, because I don't think that any of us can get where we want to go if we're not doing it. And it's I spent some, some time a couple of days ago with my son out in the yard while he's running around. I have my pool saw out. He comes over, helps me cut down a willow that I'm coppicing. Then we trim that down into new whips that we then walked around the yard while he's playing. I'm pushing them into the ground so that I can have this next piece done and get to go out then and look at this growing incremental design as it moves. Yeah, if you have children in your life or around you, you know, creating opportunities for that experience for them by you going out there and saying, hey, let's, let's do this project is huge for them. I mean, that one opportunity could really shape their lives. You know, the experience they have with that could change everything. So and if you have children, you know, go out there and, and create the experience for somebody else. If you think you're, you know, old and shot and done, you know, still get out there and do it. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I'm, through some of my explorations of education, it's the idea of finding core truths of things so that we can then develop our own principles from them. Within the permaculture community, I think that we settle too much on David Holmgren's principles because they speak so much to him and his work, but we also need to have our own that inform what, what it is that we do. And with that, talking about kids, it's, I think that the principle of being a parent, because I have friends who are thinking about kids, and I look at them and shake my head when they think that they're going to sleep for the first year. But <laughs> what do your kids really want? They want to be loved and to spend time with you. And having opportunities that you can do what you love and spend time with your kids, it's a great opportunity. And I love the garden as a place to teach and spend time with my kids, even if it does mean that 
I don't get any ripe blueberries because my children pick off all the green ones and go, Daddy, look, they're all ripe. And it's like, but what about those? And then they go, these are ours now, and then eat all the blue ones and run away. You know, as a, as a side to that, if I went out into the landscape and I tried to keep all of those principles in my head when I was thinking of what to do, you know, where to begin, I'd probably walk right back inside, you know, and go back to the book. I'd be like, oh, what did I miss? You know, let me, let, let me review that material again because I don't quite think I've got it right. You know, I'm missing a principle. I'm going to screw up. No, forget about it. You know, I go out there and I feel, I look, and yeah, I might put some thought. I definitely look for water. I think how water moves on the landscape. That's definitely one I keep always in mind. But don't underestimate your sort of intuition. If you just, you know, you see something like, hey, I could see something over there. You know, not necessarily run and do it, but, you know, really put value in that. And then just think about a few other things. It makes sure it won't create a disaster, basically. Otherwise, go for it. You know, it may not be the ultimate design. It may not hit all these permaculture principles, da 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 It doesn't matter. You know, just kind of go for it. The other side from there, from professional permaculture practice, is that idea of meeting people where they're at, not inflicting ourselves on others, is that when it comes to actually doing a design, and I say this because I just finished a consultation with someone, is that it's about what are their needs and what do they want to do. You need to know what is their budget, how much are they willing to spend per hour, you know, or whatever, so that you can tailor what you're doing to them and then sit and, you know, walk their land with them, have a conversation with them and figure out what it is that they need, because that will then focus your design work and what you give them on just what they want. And then you can, well, as you say, when you're teaching people and talking to them, you don't have to talk about permaculture, but you can still do ecological design that meets someone else's needs and gets the buy-in. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll throw in on this because this is definitely the, the way I function. I'll throw out there that I don't do drawings. I don't do these, these articulate landscape drawings. They're just not my thing. I don't like to sit down too much, so... That's one of the reasons, and and I'm I'm at this you know the stick figure you know level of my art, but and I don't have to, because when I go to a consultation, first thing I do is I sit down. I go you know sit down. I was like they're all eager to run out in landscape. I'm like no, let's go in and sit down, and I want to listen to your goals. And and I don't even say goals. I say hey, what are your dreams? What are your wildest dreams? You know what, what you know what is it really, you really are dreaming about here? And I listen to all that. And then I'm like, okay, now let's go out in the landscape and let's see where those overlap. Let's see where your landscape overlaps with your dreams, you know, so that we can, it almost becomes black and white to a degree. And so I bring to life through showing them, you know, it doesn't hurt to have visuals and pictures of work you've done or other people's work so that you can share a concept, but usually just bring to life by talking to them and showing them and explaining on their landscape how some of those things can come to life. And they get excited and they get animated and they're like, okay, how do we start? You know, how do we begin? And it's not like, oh, can I have a drawing of that? You know, I don't avoid it. I just, there's other ways to do it. So I think it's another example that you don't have to have, you don't have to go to landscape school. You don't have to learn how to draw. You don't have to have all these, these drafting things at all. There's so many ways to, to get people excited and to, and to begin doing projects with them. But yes, you have to listen to where they're ready, where, where they're interested, where their goals are. How much time do they have to be realistic? Because you want to be successful beyond your time there, beyond the job. So I ask them, you know, how much time do you have, you know, realistically to put in on this? And that really shapes what I'll suggest as well. But really their goals overlap that on the landscape. We've again covered a wide gamut of areas. This is why I try not to schedule time 
when I do these things in the way that we first talked about when I arrived about, you know, well, I should be, I have about this much time, we'll do this. I like having the opportunity to be able to move my schedule to allow these conversations to develop because we've covered a lot of ground. I've gotten to think about some things that I haven't really touched on, as is obvious with the whole, wait, 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 let me back up. But I've also, there's so much of value in this conversation for people who are just beginning and that I hope that it will help them begin to walk down the road and just do something. And with that in mind and looking at how long we've been recording, is there anything else that you would like to add to this conversation at the moment? Just to maybe, you know, use me as an inspiration to just get out there and start doing something. Someone who, yeah, I have a background of, of different growing experience, but everything that I'm doing is, is new. I don't really have a clue what I'm doing, but I'm going out there. Yeah, my wife's laughing. So true. But I'm just going out there and doing it. And I think that's the only thing that makes me different. And so I just, you know, that's, that's my message is that you can do this in your own way, whatever that is. And that was Michael Judd. I'm left feeling a bit blown away from putting this episode together because of the raw energy of the conversation. Take what he does as inspiration and get out there. Find what you love and do it. If I can help you in any way to get what you love done, give me a call or send me an email. 717-827-6266 or that regular address show at thepermaculturepodcast.com From here for the month of September, Jen Mendez at permikids.com has two Edge Alliances coming up. The first is on Sunday, September 7th from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern. This is a collaboration with other educators and parents from the Alternative Education Resource Organization to discuss the following questions. What does it mean to be a mathematical person? What have we, the educators, experienced through our lives that have helped us develop a playful attitude and curious nature towards mathematics? How can we explore and approach math with children in a way that meets them not only where they are, but also where they are going? The second is on Sunday, September 21st from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern. You can meet Kelly, an educator from the Mother Earth School, and Marissa, a Permikids parent, educator, and founder of Permacognition, who recently attended the Advanced Permaculture for Youth and Children Educators program, and join them in a lively discussion on the following questions. What sort of knowledge, concepts, or skills are needed to have a solid foundation as a permaculture youth and a child educator? What sort of things are integrated into the environment of a permaculture-minded educator? How does our own and our shared story influence us as educators and our children? How can we use storytelling as an educational tool? Join Jen and her guests in creating a better world through education. I really do believe that we can create a world of abundance together and make a difference for all life on earth. So until the next time, spend each day taking care of the earth, yourself, and each other.